and uh, you know and practicing invoking the story and uh, and to do that you know that we, we talked about this uh, a little before you can do things like mindfulness meditation you can build habits like that but a, a habit that i think is uh is quite easy and fun is a game that that i sort of like to play with myself which is called computer says yes and what computer says yes is and i actually have like a little an online like interactive sort of thing that you can do it's basically a type form that, that walks you through this game basically what computer says yes is given Welcome to Innovation and Leadership, where I interview uncommonly high achievers like top investment fund managers, elite special operations soldiers, startup CEOs who sold their companies for billions of dollars, pro athletes, Hollywood filmmakers, really as many different kinds of experts as I can. The whole idea is to hear how they did it and then what advice they have for the rest of us that can be applied to the organizations we're trying to grow and innovate. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed today's show. Welcome to Innovation and Leadership. I'm Jess Larson. This is episode three of our mini-series with Smart Cuts author Shane Snow. If you don't know about Contently and the tech brand he built and the many other books he's written, please go to shanesnow.com and check all those out. But picking off, picking up where we left off last in the mini-series, Shane, can you kind of give us the premise and maybe, maybe set up this episode for us? Absolutely. So we've been talking about thinking differently and how to actually do that, solve problems better and, and be innovative. And, and in the last episode, we talked about the scientific method as the basis for that. So in this episode, I want to talk about how the scientific method starts with observation, which seems like the easiest part, but is actually, I would dare say, the most crucial. Uh, because if you get this part wrong, then you're starting from the wrong foundation. And, and really what what the scientific method is about specifically around observation is separating the info gathering stage from the ideation stage or the debate stage where you're really getting into the details of what you're going to do. This is about bringing in inputs and deciphering the right inputs so that you can set yourself up to solve problems in, in really awesome ways. So the whole thing falls apart in the scientific method. If you don't make the right observations uh, or if you make the wrong interpretations of the observations, which is, is actually the easier thing to do. Um, and some people would call this stage data, but I, I think that data implies sort of massive amounts. Like we've seen this thing happen a thousand times, so now we can be sure of it. I like to stick to observation because, you know, Sherlock Holmes, the great problem solver, his data in double quotes was the breadth of observations that he made. It was not the number of times he observed the same murder. It was the number of details he observed about that murder. So first principles thinking is uh, really what we're, we're talking about here in this episode. And this is about making sure you're working off of the right observations when you're trying to solve a problem or when you're trying to build something like a startup. So it's about assessing situations based on their fundamental principles. And, and this way of thinking is really what makes the difference between someone who is good at strategy and someone who is good at stealing moves from other people. It's the difference between thought leaders and innovators and copycats. So the last analogy I wanna use before we dive in is if you're fighting a war, you wanna know what the bad guys are up to before you make your move. You wanna observe what they're doing so that you can counter them. And, you know, war is like problem solving. I, I, I don't like war, but I think war analogies are, are really useful. So you send scouts out to observe, you get intelligence, 
And Sun Tzu, who wrote The Art of War, he actually spelled out this first principles thing when he said that you want to learn the principle of the enemy's activity or inactivity. Force them to reveal themselves so as to find out their vulnerable spots. So the idea is not to figure out what the opposing army is doing, is to figure out why they're doing it. That makes the difference between a strategist and someone else. So if you think of a coach, you know, who just sees other teams and, and good plays that they make and steals those plays, but doesn't understand why those plays work. What is the psychology that makes the tricky move in football or basketball actually effective against the other team? The coach that, that understands that underlying principle is the one who, in the long run, will be able to outsmart the other guy. So we're not necessarily talking about war or sports. We're talking about outsmarting hard problems. But, but that's what this is about, is figuring out the underlying fundamental whys and the fundamental observations before we start coming up with the plays that we want to run. I love it. Well, I think maybe the first place to go there is nobody thinks assumptions are good. I, I mean, I don't think I know anybody who thinks assumptions are good. But can you dive deeper into the problem of assumptions? Sure. I, I'll say, you know, I, I bag on assumptions a lot in, in Smart Cuts. You know, right from the beginning, I, I talk about how innovation is about rejecting assumptions that everyone else is making. And it's about breaking rules that aren't really rules, but look like rules. And I will say before I, I go into my spiel on assumptions that I do, however, hate the cliche that, you know, what assume means, it means that you're making an ass out of you and me. Like, I hate that cliche because it's, I like puns, but I'm, I'm so sick of that one. But it is really easy to look foolish when you make assumptions and when you work off of assumptions that turn out to be true. So, you know, kudos to whoever came up with that pun. But reasoning from first principles and getting observations right is about stripping away assumptions. And, and I, I think one of the best ways to explain why this is important and, and why this is more, there are more assumptions than you think in the world is to the story of newspapers and, and the size of newspapers. So I, I don't know, do you, do you still read physical newspapers, Jess? No, but I, I like the assumption that you think I read them in the first place. This makes me feel good about myself. I, I, do, have my, I do have my Wall Street Journal subscription digitally, and I'm, you know, I do check Bloomberg a lot, but, but not the physical. So first of all, way to, you know, I mean, one of the reasons why we're having these conversations is because you're such a good example of someone who, who thinks in these ways, and you have so many stories. So good on you for calling me out about that assumption. Do you still read newspapers? But you can see how easy it is in everyday life to build in assumptions into what we think are good, you know, good avenues of, of questioning or, or thinking. So anyway, the story of newspapers that I like to tell is back in the day, oh, I forget how many years ago now, but, but you know how, how the big newspapers that you hide behind if you're a spy at a cafe, right? Like they're these broad sheets, you open them up, they, you know, they take up like feet of space. New York Times is a broadsheet, Wall Street Journal is a broadsheet, all of you know, the big newspapers all used to be broadsheets. And and the newspapers that were smaller were the tabloids. Tabloid actually is the size of paper, but uh, but all of the newspapers that were like shady were tabloid size and all the newspapers that were respectable were the large broadsheet size. And in, uh, in the UK, there was a, a major newspaper 
that uh, that realized it was spending a lot of money by you know, printing in broadsheet size, and uh, and someone in you know in their accounting department or wherever started making the case for switching to tabloid size. That they would they would save a ton of money if they just printed on normal sizes of pieces of paper instead of these enormous ones, and because uh, the printing machines and all of that were were just outrageous, and and they said no. People don't respect tabloid-sized newspapers. That's just, it conveys a, a level of credibility at the bigger size, and this is how all other newspapers do it. Well, they, the accountants won, and they switched to tabloid size, and guess what? Their circulation did not go down. In fact, it kept going up. People still respected the newspaper just as much, and they had no problems. And when you dig into why that, you know, that assumption ended up being false that, you know, people respect the broadsheets more and they believe those more than tabloid size and people don't believe tabloid size newspapers. The source of that assumption was back in the 1800s when London placed a tax on newspapers based on how many pages they had. And so what the newspapers did is they all just made their pages enormous. So you have a 10 page newspaper that has enormous pages that cost you way less in taxes than a 50 page newspaper that's easy to hold in your hands. And that was the reason that, that the broadsheets came about. And then 150 years later, no one remembered that that was the reason the pages were so big. They just assumed that it was because people respected and believed those big page newspapers. So this is a story about the problem with best practices is often best practices have come about for reasons that we don't understand or that we don't really know, or for reasons that at the time they happened were good reasons. You know, it's, it's a pretty clever hack to get around, you know, the newspaper tax by making huge pages, but that is no longer applicable in the year 2000 when there's no such tax anymore, you know, things had changed. And so the idea of, a, of starting with the problem with assumptions in problem solving I think is really powerful because a lot of things that go into why the world works the way that, it, that we see it work, our observations of it, are for reasons that are now out of date, whether technology's changed or society's changed or taxes have changed or whatever it is. And so all the time when smart people go about solving problems, they look to how other people have solved problems as the starting point. And often that starting point, the best practice is built on assumptions that no longer need apply. So the history of innovation, it's very clear that people who make breakthroughs and change the game are the ones who are willing to question the way everyone else is doing things, and that often boils down to assumptions. So that's the starting point. And then the question, you know, is how do you how do you break down, you know, what assumptions are? How do you know when you're making assumptions? And, uh, and this, in part, is, is just about habits. But I, I, I have a little kind of a rhetorical habit, I guess, or game that I like to do just to get myself into to constantly trying to identify what's an assumption and what's not. And uh, I actually forget where this comes from. It comes from some actually classic book about having hard conversations without pissing people off. It's, it's a segment of that, and I forget what book it is. But it's, it's the, the habit of when you are speaking to someone, saying, my story is whenever you don't exactly know the truth. So what I mean by this is, is a lot of times we will observe something, and then we will immediately 
decide something about that. And we treat that decision as truth, but it's actually an assumption. So if I, you know, I, I, I notice right now that I have my webcam on and, and you have your webcam off while we're having this conversation. So that's the observation. But I could very easily jump to the conclusion that you have your webcam off because you didn't get dressed this morning or, you know, you have a, a background that is like really crazy looking and you're embarrassed. And, and, you know, I could easily make that assumption is that, you know, maybe it's even a good assumption, but if I don't tell myself, if I, if I don't actually say that it's an assumption, I'm going to start to believe potentially that that is an observation. So, you know, Jess leaves his webcam off. Jess doesn't have a good background for his webcam or he doesn't look great in the mornings or whatever. That becomes the observation that then I operate on when I, you know, I'm scheduling a meeting with you and uh, say, I want to introduce you to an investor. Well, better not do it in the morning. I better make sure that Jess is in his office, but that's, that's all a story. So if I, instead of, uh, if I catch myself and, and I actually do this all the time to the point that the people in my life, you know, they hear what I'm doing when I do it, uh, but it actually becomes contagious and, and they do it around me too. I say, you know, I, I notice that your webcam is off Jess. And my story is that you don't have a good background going on. What's the real story? Or I don't even have to say that, but it, but it creates a, an entry point where I'm no longer making an ac accusation or you know treating something as fact. And when you frame it as your story, you could turn your webcam on right now and you could be in a TV studio looking great, oil in your hair, whatever, uh, three-piece suit. You could be wearing a clown costume, and you know, and my my observation in quotes would be wrong. You know that assumption. And it would be a lot easier for me to let go of that preconceived assumption if I've framed it as my story rather than I've solidified it into fact. So I think this habit in general, I think is a good habit just as humans when dealing with each other. Someone does something and it strikes you as uh, you know nefarious or as having a certain intent or whatever. Stop yourself before you turn that into an observation, separate the observation from your story about it. And even say, my story is this. And uh, you know, when I do workshops about this, I actually have people go around a circle and, and do a game. I show pictures, yellow Lamborghini, name a fact. What's your observation about the story, uh, about this yellow Lamborghini? And then what's the story about it? And then go around the, the circle and people will say, you know, it's yellow. My story is that, that the owner is rich or it's, uh, it's a Lamborghini. My story is that it's really fast. And then you go around and you say, well, what's an alternate story to that story? Well, you know, my story was that it's really fast, but another story could be that it's actually a Toyota Camry that someone put a Lamborghini shell on. It may be less likely, but suddenly what you've done is you've divorced observation from assumption. And, and that is an extremely good habit and a good starting point for, you know, if you're doing a deliberate problem solving process, being able to dig into first principles. But like I said, it's, it's really good in social situations too for you to not make assumptions about people and their intentions as well. I love it. I love it so much. You know, it's funny because you didn't list, maybe Jess is on mute eating breakfast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, and maybe, so, you know, it's funny about that. We actually started this as a video show, but people were in Wi-Fi so often that they're, that they would break up so much that it was, you know, the video wasn't good but it also deteriorated the audio quality, right? Yeah. Well, after years of doing it on Skype, we switched to Zoom 
and now we switch to Squadcast, which could which could record natively at your end, and that would no longer be a problem. It's like your it's like your newspaper example, right? Because yeah. because the audio and video is being recorded at your end, I no longer need to do what we've done for the last 380 episodes because we've switched to new software in the last three weeks, <laughs> right? However. I don't have a three-piece suit on. And this morning I thought for the first time, you know, he's got his camera on. I should change mine on. And then I thought, oh, I probably should have filmed this somewhere else if I was going to do that. <laughs> so it's funny that it's funny that you bring all those things up. And yet I think there's something so respectful and something so magnetic for truth when you basically out yourself that these are my assumptions instead of making an accusation and claiming you've got the truth right? Because humans rebel so much at being told something. If there's any slight hitch in your accusation, I'm going to ignore the 99% you're right on and zero in on the 1% that I disagree with you on. And you'll talk about the yeah. 99%. I'll talk about the 1%. And we, we're certainly not making progress or innovating or creating a new ladder to our future, right? Yeah. And even in, in your problem solving process, if you, this happens all the time in business. I've seen it happen in my company a million times. A million is you know, hyperbolic, but you make the case for something, you know, and, and you're, you're building out the case for a strategy. And then it turns out that one of your assumptions that you're making in this case is, is flawed. And then, you know, people use that to, then they make the assumption that the whole thing is flawed. And so you lose your case or, you know, that that's the implication that like, oh, this whole thing, you know, is built on sand. And so then you do whatever you can, you know, whatever mental gymnastics you need to, to make your flawed assumption true. So, you know, you use intellectually dishonest arguing tactics, or you go and you hunt for data that proves that your thing is true. You know, I, I really hate to talk about politics in these kinds of concepts, but the one that's really egregious right now is, you know, with the, the coronavirus, there's so much science that, you know, that... It, that people are, are talking about and the fact that people are arguing in politics about scientific facts speaks to this exactly. If you were as a politician, you say, this is what's going to happen. The virus will disappear or this thing is a miracle drug that's going to, to cure the virus. Then when scientists say, actually, this miracle drug that you say causes heart problems in people who are, you know, certain, have certain conditions. And so you sh we shouldn't take it then you have the decision of either like trying to sort of scramble so that people believe don't disbelieve everything you've said which you know sucks for you or you double down and try and do anything you can to make this this drug that you just promoted come true as you know the the miracle drug so it, like i said I, I hate to talk about it in politics but it, it's striking to me that the news that i you know i read this morning about how you know, the president of the United States started taking this unproven drug in order to get people to calm down about so the scientific reports that it, it causes some people heart problems is a way to win the argument rather than a way to get at the truth. And the fact that they did a press conference about it, like is it's, but it's also, it's, you know, not, not even to pick on him. It's what we all do when we get too hasty about treating assumptions as facts is we we paint ourselves into these intellectual corners where then you know we'll do whatever it takes or we suffer these catastrophic uh losses of you know of people's faith in us and in my my company seeing people you know spend months of work on building out a plan for solving a hard problem 
only to have some executive say, oh, well, that one thing you said is, uh, is actually not true about our customers. And then the CEO ends the meeting and everyone goes away. And this poor person who does have some really good ideas in their strategy is crushed and goes back to their desk and quits. That's a real story, you know? And, and so that's, I, I think on the social side of it, being charitable to people, letting them have benefit of the doubt, you know, so that they can back away from things that they, that they assume that turn out to be wrong. That's really good. But also for yourself, setting yourself up and other people up by framing assumptions as things that you can let go of and save face too. And that's the whole, my story is, I think that's crucially important. You can see how it, it, it can be devastating from a reputation standpoint and, and lead you to do shady things as well as from a problem solving standpoint, lead you to abandon observations that are good or, you know, or experiments that are still worth pursuing. You know, it's interesting how often I'd heard the term first principles thrown around and how much I didn't want to look dumb that I didn't really understand what they were saying. I was making these like vague guesses, right? But two things really helped me. One, your interview you did at Columbia University with billionaire Peter Thiel, where you guys talked about that. And then just last week, when you got me to read that book, The Great Mental Models, their chapter on first assumptions, again, it just helped me recognize what you're really getting at is, and you can correct me if you want, but is this idea of it is so efficient to take assumptions and previous learnings and these things and bake them into what we're going to do next. And so it's so tempting to rely on assumptions. And this is, you know, this is the Jess version of it. But tell me if you see it differently, that it really is this idea of getting radically self-honest about stripping, like about confronting every aspect of our premise or our hypothesis or whatever we're doing here and, and getting like really brutal about, is that an objective fact or is that an assumption and putting them in two categories so we can go test the assumptions? Is that, is that close? That's, I, I think that's exactly right. And, you know, and, and the psychology that prevents us from doing that is really interesting that, you know, because our validity as, you know, in our job or our ego or whatever is on the line sometimes, if we don't put those two things in different categories, then it does set us up to, to make things harder on ourselves. But that, that's exactly what it is. And then, I mean, I, I resonate with what you're saying about uh, you hear it invoked, but then how do you actually do it? is uh, is the harder part and in the same way the the whole theme of this series right like think different think innovatively yeah it's easy to invoke that it's a lot harder to execute that so but it's i think you're exactly right and in terms of the efficiency thing one of the things that i think is counterintuitive and that that i think you know people may push back on when they hear this especially at first is i think when actually i'm quite confident when it comes to this first principles thinking that one of the things that gets in our way is actually analogies. Analogies are really good for that efficiency thing. And they're really great for making persuasive arguments. In fact, you know, at the beginning, you know, you'll remember, I use the analogy of going to war and Sun Tzu and studying your opponents as the entree for this thing to, to persuade you and the audience that this first principles thinking is really important. So analogies are great for that, but they're actually not great for getting at the truth of things 
for particular situations. So different problems to be solved are different than other problems that are that have been solved. They, they may have lots of similarities, but it's the subtle ways that things are different that make the difference when you're trying to break new ground and, and you know, be truly what, what that buzzword thought leader is. If you want to explore beyond the paradigm that everyone, you know, is operating within, then you cannot be constrained to analogies of just how that, that we would use in explaining things. I, uh, does, it, does this start to make sense how I'm, I'm, I'm sort of bagging on analogies, but, but the connection here that I'm trying to make? Yeah, I feel like what you're saying is, and it's interesting you bring up the thought leader aspect, at least interesting to me, because when you think about, you know, the empteenth time you've seen something on a LinkedIn post or in, you know, in the business media elsewhere, and it doesn't change your life at all, it's typically a repetition of of something that's maybe been oversimplified, or that's had the cliche analogy that might be a good that might be a good jumpstart to a concept, but doesn't fully mm. encapsulate it. And, you know, I'm a real audiobook nerd. Most of our listeners know that. It really drives me nuts when people use the same example in like 40 different books about the marshmallow test at Stanford or something, right? <laughs> and you're like, really? Yeah. <laughs> you know, A, it's got its limitations. B, it's been played out to death, right? Where what you're saying, what what you're saying resonates to me of like, if there is somebody who I'm going to deeply follow, you know, I brought up Howard Marks. I'm a fan of him. Warren Buffett says, mm -hmm. if he sees a memo from Howard Marks in his email, that's the first thing he opens, right? Here's a guy who is so, he thinks so hard and so deeply about the precise truth rather than, rather than saying the past says this is it, so that's it. He's so willing to question his own assumptions that he comes up with things that are drastically original and helpful. And, and mm -hmm. is a super legitimate thought leader in a space full of literally tens of thousands of people with advanced degrees. Mm -hmm. And so as you were saying, and it just really appealed to me of this idea of if we were going to do that in our own industry, that this idea of question, you know, questioning, is that a fact or is that an assumption? And this kind of thing, it creates the difference that's actually valuable. I don't know. Yeah. Do you see it differently? Yeah, uh, I, I, I like that, the way that you're putting that. And so yesterday, I, I participated in a virtual event where I, I had a 10-minute speech about intellectual humility, which, as you know, is one of my favorite topics. And there was another speaker there who, really smart person, who I respect a lot, but they, they started their talk with an analogy that actually really bothered me. And I think it was an example of the danger. So they said, let's pretend that every night before you went to bed, you drank a bottle of wine and, uh, and that you actually kept a bottle of wine next to your bed all night within arm's reach of you. And then first thing in the morning, as soon as you get up, you drink a bottle of wine and then you keep that bottle of wine with you all day long. What would we call you? An alcoholic. You would have, we'd say it's an addiction. So why don't we call smartphones what they are, an addiction? And that's a very powerful analogy. And it, it's, it's persuasive in many ways. You, you know, I understand why, why you would use that if you want to convey the seriousness of just how hooked we are on our phones. However, it's a false analogy 
in many ways. It's only a good analogy from the point of view of you keep this within arm's distance and you use it at night, you know, and first thing in the morning and last thing at night. That's the only place where that analogy is is actually appropriate because using your smartphone does not impair your thinking like alcohol does and it doesn't destroy your liver and it doesn't it doesn't lead to a lot of the negative effects that uh, that drinking that much wine does and it's uh it doesn't make you fat you know there there's there's all sorts of things that you could take from that analogy that are wrong including that it, the type of addiction and the nature of addiction between a substance you ingest and an object that you use is very different. The principles that a phone operates on your brain and that alcohol operates on your brain are so different that if you were to use the alcohol analogy in trying to solve the problem of, you know, say, say you decide that the, the observation is being on your phone takes you away from time with your family or whatever, you know, drinking lots of wine could do that too. However, a lot of people drink as a social activity, so already the analogy breaks down. But, but if you're trying to solve the problem of how do I spend more time with my family and be less distracted by my phone, then using that bottle of wine analogy is a terrible place to start. And so this is, a, I think, a, you know, a dramatic example, but it's, it's so common. It's like, this guy is a big deal. And I think, you know, I don't want to bag on him too much, which is why I won't say, say his name in case anyone does happen on that talk uh, because he's making some good points. However, the danger is the analogy that's so effective for getting people to think about something and to be persuaded about something is often actually the opposite of effective for solving a problem because the details are the things that matter. And it gets at your, your story with, with Mr. Marx about how being willing to question these things is, is what makes the difference who the leaders are. For me, I actually, I tell myself being like, it's bad to be too proud of yourself, I think. But I was proud of myself for immediately saying, well, let's back up and question this assumption. And I ended up, you know, ranting about it to my wife, but I, I was proud about it. The fact that I immediately started questioning that as the basis for, for this argument that he's making, because I think that, you know, that ind indicates that in general, I'm, I'm doing a better job at, you know, at trying to get to the, the core of things, to the first principles of things, rather than building off of, you know, what's already been built, such as an analogy. You know, it's so interesting to me. I feel like this is just a big Howard Marks commercial coming from me, which I do endorse the guy. Everybody should go get his books. But, you know, I, I think what's so interesting about what you're saying, what you're saying is something that I've seen him do and Warren Buffett do. But Howard will he'll jumpstart a conversation with an analogy and then he'll immediately bring a level of intellectual humility and intellectual honesty to it and immediately follow up with, and here's where the, here's where that analogy breaks down. And he starts mm -hmm. talking about where they're different, you know, like, listen, yeah. I feel like I have some compuls compulsive behaviors around my phone. I get, I get nervous if I show, you know, hand my phone to my wife to watch a video or something and then she doesn't hand it back and it's been a few minutes and where is it? And, you know, like, <laughs> right. Like, I think that I have some compulsive behaviors about my phone and yet there are massive breakdowns in a chemical dependency, you know, alcoholic chemical dependency compared to the level of compulsivity I feel about mm -hmm. my phone. Right. And, yep. and when the analogy is the end of the story, instead of, you know, step one in a thousand step journey, 
anyways, I don't know if that's where you're going yeah. with it, but that's where I feel like. Well, I, I like that. Yeah, I like that a lot. I think, you know, if I if I were to, to give like some general advice, it would be if you're using analogies to persuade people and they're not going to be critical thinkers and you're sure of whatever it is you're trying to persuade them, then use it as the tool that you're going to use it as. But if you're using analogies as a way to get people to care about something so you can then actually truly break some new ground, then identifying where the analogy breaks and, and actually just being forthright about this is an analogy so that we can understand the importance. And now we're going to get rid of that analogy. I think that's, that's really good. It's, it's like use it when it's efficient for doing what it's good at, but don't use it as a way to to make more efficient a thinking process that you actually want to be thorough. Mm. You know, what occurs to me as you say that is this idea of, you know, I, I do find analogies really helpful when trying to help someone see things my way or trying to get them to wrap their head around a mental model in the first place, you mm -hmm. know, but it, it does not invite me to a place of intellectual curiosity. It does not, I even notice what it does to myself. I'm in this mode of, I have the truth and I'm imparting it to you rather than let's go on our discovery together to see if the data supports my hypothesis. Just yeah. as like a frame of mind that I'm in. Well, and I want to talk about this. So let's say that I recognize certain ways I've been approaching a situation. I've been bringing assumptions with me and I've been maybe even trying to convince people to see it my way with some analogies. But instead, I want to start reasoning from first principles. And I want to start mm -hmm. breaking down the problem into inarguable fundamental pieces. Talk to me yeah. about that. I, I'm so glad you used the word inarguable because I think it's such a good word to have in mind when you're thinking about this, this process. What are the, the, not assumptions, the observations that are inarguable that you know, and I'll get to this later uh, if we have time. A, a kind of a corollary to the my story is habit. But if if the world's greatest computer could record it and verify that that it is a fact, that's inarguable, right? You know, if it can be seen, measured, taste, whatever it is, and uh, even that is is not the perfect analogy because some inarguable things are are also abstract. You know, but. The steps, there's really two steps to reason from first principles. The first is to break down, and then the second is to build out. So breaking down a problem into its inarguable fundamental pieces, I think for a, I'm a kind of visual thinker. So for a visual thinker like me, I like to actually use separate sticky notes to put down the different pieces of, you know, of the problem. And, and if you can just break whatever the situation is into its component parts and identify the assumptions themselves, you know, list out the assumptions, but really, and I'll, I'll get to a couple of stories that can actually help this, this be more concrete, but really what you want to do is you want to separate rules and practices from principles. That's the key. So principles, first principles are like the, the why, you know, the, the strategist, again, to use an analogy, the strategist who understands why things are being done this, the way that they are. It's understanding why the newspapers switched to the big paper size, not and, and separating that from the rule. So it, you know, for me, it's like actually list these out. You know, I have stacks and stacks of sticky notes that, I mean, 
the audience can't see it, but you could see, I think my wall is full of sticky notes. I got, you know, piles of books and sticky notes in the corner there. My process is actually like quite literally breaking things down into their component parts, but, but it's really getting clear on what are the rules, what are the practices and what are the principles and uh, a story of this in action from history that I think explains this really well is the story of, I think one of the most innovative people in all of the history of humankind who happened to be quite a murderer, also happened to be a murderer was uh, Genghis Khan. So Genghis Khan actually super misunderstood a lot of what pop culture paints Genghis Khan as actually was like his sons, the warlords that after he died kind of like were, were a lot less principled than he was. But Genghis Khan did take over the modern or take over the, the known world. And, and there's this great book called Genghis Khan and the making of the modern world. And it's named that because the innovations that he set about in society actually did pave the way for modern society. Uh, so Genghis Khan was super innovative. And, uh, and a couple stories about how he took over the world, starting from literally nothing, from rags, are instructive about this rules versus principles thing and, and really understanding the difference. So Genghis Khan, he grew up on the, the steppes of, of Mongolia, wasn't called that at the time, but in a little clan and a little tribe in this area where there were, were hundreds of other clans and tribes. And the way that things worked was family ties and family hierarchy was this very rigid system that, that just had all of these rules for, you know, who you had to marry in order to, you know, and at what time in order to become part of the family, in order to get protection. There was this whole practice around at a certain age, like 16, you go out with your buddies on horses and you steal some girls to be your wives. And then if you wanted to like basically screw over the other tribe, the thing you did is you ambushed them in a certain kind of ambush and stole their wives. And then the rule was once you had your wife stolen, then you were basically like the lowest class and you got treated like from then on and you couldn't like do anything. And this is just the way it was. And, and the society was structured this way. And, and when Genghis Khan had his wife stolen from him, he didn't do what everyone else did in the society, which is like, there's sort of this, this like waiting period where if you can go and steal your own wife or whatever, you can then be a, a member of the society again. Or else you're now like a like a surf like mud digger type that everyone you know rejects and you can't have any sway. Instead of doing that, which is what the rules were, he snuck back to the camp of the guys that had stolen his wife and killed them and took his wife back. Which you know, not saying that murder is the the takeaway from this story, but he recognized that that rule was stupid and that he wanted his wife back. And what this whole incident made him realize is that all of these rules about family ties and the way that you got married and, and your status and all that, what they really were about was loyalty so that these people who are surviving in this harsh environment could survive together, get the resources they need and protect themselves from people who wanted their resources. That if you had loyalty among each other and you could trust each other in a group, then you could survive better. And so all these rules we're really about that. But what he recognized is what I need is that loyalty factor and that trust factor. So how can I get that without all these stupid rules that involve kidnapping wives and, 
you know, and these weird status things. And so what he did is he basically recruited all of these outcasts who are at the mercy of this awful system and basically said, I don't care who your family is. Practically, like, I don't even want to know. As long as you're loyal to my group, then we're going to look out for each other. And we're going to do what, what it takes. And so what ended up happening is he ended up getting basically taking over all of these tribes because people would rather be part of his his group and loyal to him because he was he was so focused on that principle than be treated like garbage or be at the mercy of all these rules. They liked fewer rules and more principles. And, and the rules that actually he created around this principle were basically like, if you betray anyone, then I'll kill you. If you betray my enemy, I will kill you. If you betray me, I will kill you. Just don't betray people. That's that's the principle, guys. It's uh, it's be loyal, don't betray people. And people like that so much better that he basically took over all of the, the tribes and united the Mongolian people. So that's the first one. The second one is when he went, then went about taking over the world, the known world at the time. There was this very specific way that Mongol warriors fought, you know, uh, the way that they, they charged into battle on their horses with their, their sort of sword-like weapons, and they, they were very good archers. And, and they were really aggressive, and they were good at fighting because of that. But they did not have the technology that the Chinese had or the Persians had. And so when they went up to, to battle against them, what Genghis Khan did is he – it's actually kind of simple when you think about it now. He rejected the way we fight, the rules for how a Mongol warrior fights, in favor of the goal is winning. So we will do whatever it takes to win. You know, and, and he did all these things that, that now you see movies and you're like obvious, but at the time, you know, in the, I think it was the 1300s, was not obvious. It was like, dig a trench, put a bunch of sharp sticks in it, go to attack, and then run away like a bunch of cowards. And then when they run after you, they fall into the, the hole with all the spiked sticks. And then, and then you go and you just sort of walk and then take over their city. And that, so he was like, the principle is we got to win. The principle is not don't look like a coward, which was, that's a rule. And so a lot of his fighting strategy was like it just rejected all of this stuff about, you know, these rules for looking good or whatever in favor of these principles. And then the other thing, the last thing that I'll say on my Genghis Khan monologue is, uh, is that he, every time he took over a city or, you know, a population, he, he would kill the, the rulers and, and basically say to the people, you're loyal to me now. And if you're loyal to me, then, you know, we're good. If you betray me, then I'll kill you. Same speech every time. It's about loyalty, you guys. Like, I don't care if you're Chinese. I don't care if you're Muslim. He actually, freedom of religion was basically, like, invented by him in society. He was like, I don't care about any of that as long as you're loyal. That's the principle. Make your own rules about what you do with God. I don't care. And also, every time he'd take over a place, the first thing he would do is have his guys go round up any scientist, engineer, strategist, and say, teach us how you fight. Give us your knowledge. And, and at first, a lot of the Mongols were like pissed off about all of these things. They're like, no, but we're warriors and we ride up and we're, you know, we use horses and swords. He's like, nah, these guys know how to do like fire napalm stuff. We're going to do that now. And, uh, and so basically he added cognitive diversity to his, his army and his pool. And he did not care about the way things were done. All of the rules that, you know, that generals and strategists and smart people came up with, the principle was combine any knowledge you can so that we can win. And, and this is how he took over the world. And every time he'd come to a new city, he's in Persia, he's in, you know, in elsewhere in the Middle East, 
and and they just didn't know what they were up against you know his enemies because he he was always going to outsmart them from a problem solving standpoint and and it was because he was so focused on first principles and then you know after he died his sons were rich spoiled warlords that you know that then did a lot of awful atrocious things beyond just kind of killing the ruling class and absorbing the people and so we get the myth the myths around Genghis Khan as well but this is the idea you identify what are the rules and you know even better if you can dig into the history of how they became rules why they're rules and really dig into the underlying principle of why those were created in the first place and then forget the rules focus on how you can with your new knowledge or technology or people that you have how you can accomplish that principle instead. So that's step one. I'll take a pause there in case you have a reaction, Jess. No, it, it is interesting for me though, just a slight observation of, you know, cause there's, there's many things Genghis Khan did that I'm obviously uncomfortable with on a morality level and integrity level. Right. And, <laughs> and it's interesting. I, I was, I got to go to Nigeria with and i was teaching a program with the united states special operations command because nigeria was standing up their special operations command and it was basically this like week-long thing about here's the mistakes we made in afghanistan here's the mistakes we made in iraq hopefully you don't have to make those same mistakes with boko haram okay mm -hmm. and this 25 year seal who i had a lot of respect for basically was like extolling to me the virtues of Genghis Khan at the time. And I'm like, <laughs> hold on, you know, like it, it, it had so like, I had this cognitive dissonance of like, yes, but I feel like he made wrong moral decisions so often. Does that mean I can't learn? And it was like this, can mm. I recognize that I think he made wrong moral decisions and there could still be lessons to learn from what he's done. That, that's exactly right. Yeah, that, that is, you know, and that, that dissonance, this, you know, we talked about this before, being able to hold two things in, in your head at the same time to say he was a murderous villain and he was really smart and we can learn from some things. I think that is really, you know, someone who is, is truly trying to solve problems will be agnostic as to the source of good ideas. And, you know, if that good, if there's a good idea in the mix of a thousand bad ideas, recognizing that and being willing to use it, even if, you know, people might criticize you. And this happens in politics all the time. It drives me crazy. Where it's like the, the, you know, whoever's on your, the team that you're not rooting for, everything they do is bad. Are you serious? You can't, you can't support anything they do. Like there isn't one smart thing or one noble thing or one thing to be learned from one, you know, I, I think that's a, that's, it's a counterproductive thing. I will also say in, I can't believe I'm going to use the phrase in Genghis Khan's defense, but in Genghis Khan's defense, <laughs> there were a couple, there was one principle that I, I do really respect. And his principle was human life is valuable and it's valuable in itself. So he, even though he killed a lot of people, he had a rule based on that human life is valuable of no torture. He had a rule of no, uh, of minimize the losses of innocence Anyone who's not a combatant, make sure they don't get killed or injured or raped or like that was a rule of his. And of course, you know, when his armies and his sons were, were off in distant lands, they, they did all those things. But if he found out about them, then the punishment was severe. If you tortured, you know, the, the ambassador for some, some enemy of his, he would have you killed. And, and 
and it really was this focus on, you know, if human life is valuable, then we're not going to care if we, we look ridiculous or stupid or cowardly when they, we fight this battle, if it means that fewer people will die for us to win. So, uh, you know, I think that he had some moral things that were like dastardly and horrific, but a lot of the, like the torture and the slaughter of innocence and the, the, you know, the violation of innocence was actually against his own principle and just kind of what their society became after that. So that it's interesting to even tease apart that, that it's like, oh, maybe he, maybe our conception of him on that level actually is, uh, could be wrong as well. At least this is according to, you know, to historians who study him. And also he was still a murderer, or a horrible guy that instead of, you know, re-kidnapping his wife, he just killed everyone who was involved. Like that's obviously not the right thing to do. Um, I shouldn't say obviously, but you know, from a, if you do value human life, like that violates his own principle. So there's, you know, inconsistencies abound. But uh, point is, what you're getting at is uh, I don't think we should get too excited about him in his entirety as an analogy. But I don't think that it's wise to, if you see a lesson that can be learned from someone, even as you know, as murderous as him, to to just not take that lesson as one of your inputs just because of its source i think that's that's also not wise i love it well so if if i am let's say i'm practicing this i'm trying to you know myelinate the neural connections in my brain so i've mm -hmm. got the muscle memory to get myself to do this more often so i get better at it right pushing myself outside the comfort zone and and i am successful or at least i believe i'm successful in breaking down the problems into these inarguable fundamentals, the, the objective facts, and then separating out, you know, I've got my list of facts, I got my list of uh, assumptions. How do I then build like concrete reasoning from there? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I'll, I'll share three quick stories of different ways to, to do this that I think each illustrate different strategies or, you know, perhaps even principles about building out from first principles. First story is, you know, Elon Musk is famous for, you know, he talks a lot about using first principles. He, you know, with cars, with rockets, with solar energy, has consistently, as an industrialist, used first principles as the, the reasoning for, or as the method for uh, innovation. And, you know, when he was working on uh, Tesla in the early days, people basically said, this is a ridiculous idea because battery packs are really expensive. They're heavy, they're expensive. You can't get the battery power that you need to power a car for a cost that makes selling the car, building the car make sense at all for people. It's constrained by the cost of batteries. You know, it's $600 per kilowatt hour for batteries right now. And it's not going to get that much better in the future, which, first of all, is a bad assumption that you know, we're not going to invent better batteries in the future. Bad assumption, you know, to predict the future like that. But he said, well, what are the first principles of battery packs, battery power? What are the material constituents of batteries? And what's the stock market value of those constituents? So he said, you know, batteries made of cobalt, nickel, aluminum, aluminum, <laughs> aluminum, aluminum, carbon polymers for separation and basically a, like an enclosure to seal it all up. Those are the fundamental uh, components of uh, a battery. So let's break that down and say, if we bought 
all of those components separately on the London Metal Exchange or whatever the you know the stock exchange for for buying those those commodities would be, how much would it cost to get all those materials? They did the math and said, oh, that would be eighty dollars per kilowatt hour, which is way less than six hundred. So now, the problem to solve is what's a clever way to combine all those materials into the shape of a battery that costs less than $600. Well, that's, that's actually a much easier problem to solve than, you know, how do you, how do you make a $600 battery kilowatt hour battery work? So it's not starting at the battery, starting at like literally the raw materials for the battery. He did the same thing with, with SpaceX where you, you want to make rockets so that you can go to space so that actually you can eventually go to Mars. And he looked at all the components that, that go into a modern rocket. And then the you know, first thing he, that he saw is a space shuttle has like four different size parts. There's the plane, then there's the two side boosters, and there's the one huge booster. These are all made in different assembly lines. And all the parts come from all suppliers all around the world who are all making a profit. And he said, well, what are the constituent parts of a, a rocket? And what if we could make it in the simplest assembly line possible? What's the simplest way to assemble a rocket in one go. This is like kind of a, like almost like an essentialism approach. You know, what's the simplest way to do it? But he was like, if we make the rocket all one diameter, so it's like, there's there's no different size diameter of booster parts, then we can make that all in the same assembly line. And instead of getting parts from all over the place, let's make our own parts. And that's that takes a lot of thinking. There's not really any shortcuts there. However, once he built that out, he's able to make a much less expensive rocket, a much more powerful rocket, now rockets that he can reuse. So that's, that's one way to, to build out is you, you literally take the components that would go into it and reassemble them in a different way. Take the, all the parts off of the table, figure out what they're each used for, and build up from there. Another example, specifically on this essentialism idea, is break apart the problem you're solving and figure out what is the fundamental thing that that the the existing solution is is trying to solve so you're trying to solve a problem be innovative you're trying to invent a better machine than what's out there figure out what the number one point of that machine is what the fundamental purpose of it is ignoring what all the parts do what all the rules are and you know and the components actually uh do and boil it down to the goal. So my favorite example of this is, uh, is something called the Embrace Swarmer. Basically a team of, of engineers and designers started by someone who's a friend of mine now, her name's Jane Chen. Basically we're trying to reinvent the infant incubator to keep newborn babies alive if, if they're born prematurely. And, uh, and an incubator basically has like a thousand you know, component parts and it costs 20 grand. And every modern hospital has one, but you don't have one if you're in a poor village in Pakistan. And so she wanted to make an incubator that, that they could afford in a poor village in Pakistan. And, and they, they could not take the, you know, the linear approach or the logical approach of make a more efficient incubator, which is basically a glass box with all this monitoring equipment and you know, all of that. And so they, they were forced to say, well, what is, what is the number one thing that keeps a baby alive if it's born prematurely? And, uh, you know, or, or what is it at all? What are the principles of what keeps a baby alive? You know, forget the device, the machine. And it turns out that in 90% of cases, the number one thing, the only thing is just heat. It's being the temperature you should have been had you stayed inside of your mother. 
you know, for that extra two months or whatever. And, uh, you know, the, you also need food and all that, but it's, you know, you don't need a whole incubator to, to provide, you know, food for, you know, a baby, but keeping a baby warm and the exact right temperature, that's the problem to be solved. So observing that, that was the observation and that became the first principle. And so they then, from that first principle, they threw out the window an incubator and they basically made a sleeping bag that, uh, that has a little heating pad in it that keeps the baby the exact right temperature. And it's so simple that you don't need to know how to read to use it. So all these villages and, you know, in rural India and Pakistan can, can use it without, you know, instruction manuals. And uh, so that's, that's another way to, to build out from first principles is, is boil down the fundamental goal or, you know, the problem to be solved and then come up with ways to solve it fresh. Third methodology, once you've broken the problem down. And to, to go from first principles is, is uh, an analogy, <laughs> yeah, as I've bagged on analogies and then hypocritically used them, the analogy is just in the name. It's uh, what I call a snowflake method. And this comes from novel writing, but it's extremely useful for, you know, say nonfiction writing or for building out a plan uh, for anything. It's uh, instead of, uh, of looking at, you know, the, all of the component parts of what you're trying to do. You take whatever it is that you're trying to accomplish and you boil it down to one sentence and you work as long as possible on getting the one sentence right. So the sentence description of, I mean, this, this works often best if you're talking about you know, content or you're talking about marketing or you're talking about, you know, persuasion or whatever it is. But for me, you know, I'll, I'll use the example of, of writing a, a nonfiction book. Instead of planning out the whole book and, you know, and, and writing up a pitch, I spend months on the one sentence description of the book because it forces you to boil the book down to its ultimate goal and essence. And so it's basically what would the New York Times write in its one sentence description on the bestseller list if you, it became a bestseller. So you iterate on that and spend all of that thinking power on that one sentence. And once you get that right, then you turn that one sentence into a paragraph. You build on the fundamental thing, and then you, you, you iterate and iterate and work on that paragraph that's a little bit more descriptive, more detailed. So you're building out that snowflake. And then once you have the paragraph, then you write of one page about this. And you're, you're writing the same thing, but what, uh, you know, you're just you're building out the, the details, but because you spend so much time up front working on that thing in its most microscopic form, it forces you to approach it from the, the most fundamental, fundamentally useful angle. So then once you have the page description of your novel or nonfiction book or project or whatever it is, then you write a one sentence description of each chapter and you go through the process again. This chapter is this one sentence, you work on that, then it's this paragraph, then it's this whole page, and then you write the whole book. So this is a, is a uh, is the building out process of of the first principles thing if you try to tackle the project in a bigger way you write out you know the the page long description first then what's likely to happen is as you start working on writing the whole book you get halfway through and you may realize oh no the way that i'm framing this fundamentally needs to change the umbrella for this topic actually is is not the one that i'm writing about you either have to go back to the start and rewrite the book or you do what a lot of people do is you work with what you've got and you now you're working off of, you know, a not ideal platform 
and and you you do your best and you write out the book and then you try to persuade people that the way that you did it is the right way and it becomes a much harder marketing challenge. So if you remember from that that Peter Thiel interview that I did that is about his book which is you know talks a lot about 10x thinking and and some about first principles. He he talked about how it's so much easier to sell something that is 10 times better of a solution than everyone else's than something that's just a little bit better of a solution. You know, a salesperson would love to have the product that's 10 times better than everyone else's product. That's, you don't even have to do any, any work. It's doing all of the hard work up front, that hard thinking to make the product that's 10 times better. That, that actually is where all the, you know, the work goes in and makes the salesperson's job easier. That's what this snowflake idea is, is you're spending so much time making sure you have the fundamental observation right that then you build it out from there. So are those helpful, those are those examples? Super helpful. I feel like, I don't know, I feel like we could do an hour and a half just, just on that. I've got so many things I want to talk about, but in the name of time, I think... I think it might actually be more helpful to talk about one of my favorite fictional characters because I know that you can basically wrap all this stuff up when it comes to Sherlock Holmes. <laughs> so so um, <clears throat> thinking about everything we've covered so far, can, can you give us your, you know, I know you've got some stories about Sherlock Holmes and Einstein and, and some other people and, and how that all relates here. Sure. So there's two. So Maria Konnikova is one of my favorite writers and uh, and a friend of mine who actually has a new book coming out that is how she used psychology to become a po world poker champion, which is amazing. Anyway, so she she wrote this great book that I, I we've talked about before called Mastermind: How to Think Like Sherlock Holmes, and and she breaks down in the book two M's that are crucial for how Sherlock Holmes did what what we're calling the observation stage of the scientific method. And that they make the difference between a, a Holmesian thinker and, and, you know, everyone else. And the two M's, they're actually simple. It's motivation and mindfulness. You have to be motivated to do what, you know, that Einstein quote that I shared last time to spend 55 minutes thinking about the problem and five minutes thinking about the solutions. You have to be really motivated to do the hard thinking instead of just the hard work, which actually ends up being the easier path. And Sherlock Holmes was really motivated by this. But the thing he was also motivated to do is to do whatever it takes to get to, to get the observations and to, to think about things in the right way, even at the cost of how it looked to other people. So, you know, you're talking about the, the thing with the, you know, the special forces soldier, talking about Genghis Khan in a, you know, in a, a laudatory way and you being uncomfortable with that, totally normal. And yet recognizing that there's something potentially to be gained from studying Genghis Khan. Someone could, I mean, someone could even listen to this interview and be like, and, and come to the conclusion that, that Shane Snow is a piece of garbage because he's, he's way too into Genghis Khan. <laughs> I, I don't care if you come to that conclusion. First of all, that's the wrong conclusion. But I don't care because I care more about the lessons you can learn from that. And Sherlock Holmes especially didn't care. There's this quote that's, that's sort of ridiculous in uh, the BBC version with Benedict Cumberbatch when one of the, the detectives that he's working with is like, you're a psychopath. And Sherlock Holmes says, 
I'm not a psychopath. I'm a high-functioning sociopath. Get the details right. <laughs> and it's like that also, like, you know, a sociopath is not good. Also, they're kind of the same thing. But, like, like that's not good. But he doesn't care what he looks like so long as he solves the case. So I think the motivation to – your motivation to, to get to first principles and to be – do the brave thing of looking bad by questioning assumptions and questioning – what you used to think even you have to have that motivation in order to do any of this and and i think it's easier to have that motivation if you kind of fancy yourself a little bit like sherlock holmes and you know you can say the smartest people that we look up to do exactly that they don't care what they look like as long as they are are trying to get to the truth and they don't care if they were wrong before as long as they become right eventually or or they discover what is right uh, so that's the first one uh, as sort of like a conclusion to all of this. And then the second one is, is mindfulness, which is uh, practicing paying attention to the details and practicing paying attention to what's the observation and what's the story and, uh, you know, and practicing invoking the story. And, uh, and to do that, you know, that we, we talked about this a, a little before, you can do things like mindfulness meditation, you can build habits like that. But a habit that I think is uh, is quite easy and fun is a game that that I sort of like to play with myself, which is called Computer Says Yes. And what Computer Says Yes is, and I actually have like a little an online like interactive sort of thing that you can do. It's basically a type form that that walks you through this game. Basically, what Computer Says Yes is, given anything that you observe, would a computer say yes? This is a factual, inarguable observation, or would a computer say does not compute. So, you know, right now I'm looking at plant in my, my living room and the plant is, I could say this plant is really tall and has big green leaves. Would computer say yes to that? A computer that analyzed this plant would say plant has green leaves. Yes. Peter says, yes. Plant is really tall, does not compute because really tall is relative. It's not really tall compared to, you know, a redwood. Uh, it is really tall compared to like a cactus, you know, like a little succulent cactus that's sitting next to it. It's not really tall. Computer, a computer couldn't say that this tree is really tall. It could say that this tree is five feet tall. Basically, is is about looking at the world and observing what is uh, is comparison that that is not inarguable, and what is fact, and what is assumption that is not inarguable and what is actual scientific observation. So I can, I can send you the link actually, if, if you want to share it with people to the, the computer says yes game, but, but this idea that you gotta be motivated to do the, the hard mental work, even if it makes you look bad and you have to, to start becoming aware of what are factual observations and what are observations that can be argued with the ones that you can't argue with are the first principles that should be the things that you focus on and build up from there. The ones that you can argue with are the ones that you then take through this, the rest of the scientific method. You question, you try to figure out uh, whether they're inarguable or not, whether they can be true and can be helpful. You know, I think that's one of the most helpful things you've taught me. I think that that gives such a a capacity for objectivity. You know, I think about my business partners at our Greystoke Investment Fund. I think about people that I work with on our 
charity, child rescue, you know, like so, so many parts of my life, I could play that game with folks and it stops being an emotional conversation about, am I right? Or are you all right? If, if we play this and, and I'm just going to put words in your mouth and you correct me here, but it's almost like if we could play computer says yes to separate out the facts and the assumptions and to mm-hmm. bring that intellectual honesty and intellectual humility it's like a way to save face to bring intellectual humility and me acknowledging, yeah, I guess the plant isn't really tall. That's probably not the right way to describe it. Right. Because it becomes about the data instead about was just right or was the other person right. And it's, it's fascinating because it's easy to learn. I could do it with my junior high. You know, I could do it with my (laughs) nine-year-old. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So, so quick to learn and almost the format of it functionally lets everyone save face to get on the same page. Yeah. What a, what a, like an efficiency, what a gift, what a opportunity to make progress while inviting cooperation. Yeah. I, I, I love the way that you put that. It's even treating it as, and, and using entry points like computer says, yes, as a, as a way to treat this as a collaborative game, right. That, Really, truly, and then this is why where when I build on smart cuts in, in my book, Dream Teams, it's all about this idea that together we can be smarter than you know than we can be individually if we do the right things. But we have to to start treating the problem as a a, a game that we are together trying to find the solution for. And we'll get to this when we do the episode on on disproving hypotheses. You know, if, uh, if someone has an idea and then you, you shoot holes in it and try and disprove it, that could make them feel bad. You know, it could, ego could get involved or, you know, especially if you're the one with the power, it could really make them feel uncomfortable. But if you pull them into the game of how can we together try to disprove that, then it's no longer personal. And, and then you're, you're showing them that you're, you want to make use of their thinking. And it's not about who's right. It's about together getting to the right thing. So, so that's where, you know, the Sherlock Holmes analogy, I think, uh, is, is not the right one. I mean, in many ways, he does bring Watson along, you know, into, in for the ride, but Watson is kind of the observer. Sherlock Holmes was not so collaborative, right? But, so we're not going to be him. But if together we play the Sherlock Holmes game, that's a lot more interesting than trying to be the one who's, who comes up with the right answers and who is right. Because then, you know, once again, like I, I keep mentioning, then there becomes this pressure for you to not back down when you are wrong about something or when you misassume something and to double down so that you don't appear weak or, you know, or dumb or whatever. And, and so turning it into a collaborative game, even if the stakes are really high, you know, it's, it's no true game if you're trying to save premature babies' lives. But the collaboration aspect and the component parts of you know, what's uh, inarguable, what would computers say yes to, what's my story, how can we together disprove these things, that being the game ends up being a really useful way to approach problems. You know, it's interesting. There's so many disagreeable things about Sherlock Holmes and the way he disregards other and and certainly the way mm-hmm. Benedict Cumberbatch played the part in the BBC <laughs> series, you know, very highly disagreeable in, in so many ways. Right. So many disagreeable things about choices Genghis Khan made. I mean, the other one I would put in this category is Steve Jobs. You know, yeah. uh, I, I do not 
have much respect for the the way he mistreated so many people right mm -hmm. and does that mean that i can't like you know cherry pick and take the cream of like here's a guy who is willing to question how things have to be here is a guy who is willing to not accept this is how it's always been so this is how long it's got to take you know like mm -hmm. <clears throat> you know i i guess yeah. for me in summary for all of this and i'd love to see if you see it differently i feel like again read your books multiple times, watch your keynotes. We've had all these conversations, but for me, this session, a different analogy came to mind, which will not be perfect as we've previously <laughs> mentioned, but for me is like almost a mental map for, to walk myself back through is I feel like in certain ways, what I got maybe to a different level is this idea that if I wanted to be able to follow your advice, it's almost like I need to, look at how it's always been done. So I'm looking at the investment space and how you raise money so you can buy big commercial real estate buildings or whatever, right? And it's almost like mm -hmm. I need to reduce it back to the most basic ingredients of this recipe and then and then play the, like invent a sport, play a game with the team on do they really have to be recombined in the order that they have been for the last number of decades? Mm -hmm. or Or asking like, do they do they need to be like do the methods of cooking or delivery do those do those even require all these ingredients right mm -hmm. if if i'm trying to if i'm trying to deliver the same amount of nutrition in an appealing way that will magnetic, magnetically <laughs> magnetically attract people to want it like are the ways it's almost like by breaking them down into the separate ingredients it makes it easy to question is that is that ingredient required are there replacement yeah. ingredients? Do we, can that ingredient be skipped? I mean, like, I feel like your book so often is about this idea of skipping unnecessary work, right? Mm -hmm. And over time, as we work to specialize as humans, we typically add complexity, right? And over, yeah. over time, separating out the unnecessary complexity, when we've got this whole mental map of how this works, that, that complexity can be baked in. Where what you've just taught us today and, you know, computer says yes and separating our piles. And like, I liked seeing your like 250 post-it notes on your window there when you moved your webcam. But <laughs> it's, it's, to me, it's like a simple, repeatable, unintimidating way to break it into the individual ingredients to then question, do we need all these? Do they have to be combined this way? Do we, anyways, so that, yeah. I'd be interested to have you weigh in on my, on my analogy there. I, I love it. I I think it it comes back to, you know, the Steve Jobs thing, I think is a really interesting uh, example of what we do so often. It comes right back to the, the very first thing we talked about today. A lot of people look at Steve Jobs as this transformative, innovative leader, which he was, changed the world, built a what's now a trillion dollar company, right? And they say, well, he was brusque with people and he was a jerk. And so to be an innovative leader, I need to be also brusque and a jerk. And if you break down the pieces of what made him successful, it's really hard to come to that conclusion. That was, you know, part of his sort of struggle with character, I think. That when you really strip things away, you're not just copying the move. You uh, you can realize that that's the that's a false thing to take out of it. Just in the way that, you know, 
your your podcast is number one in innovation, right? And then in iTunes and other podcasts, you know, and say it one day it becomes the number one podcast on Apple entirely. And other podcasts start to look at what you're doing and they'll say, you know what? The best way to do a podcast is for the host to not have their camera on, but for the guests to have their camera on. But that's going to be just because of, you know, how you did it. Not every component of how you did it is the thing that makes the difference, right? And and so I think giving yourself permission and, and actually the challenge even to to break things apart and to look at them skeptically from from that point of view and to, to say, you know, Steve Jobs was great, was great and he was a jerk. And so what can I learn from that? I think is, is enormously useful. And uh, yeah, I mean, I guess in, in summary, if you were, oh, actually, I, I do have one last thing before we go. I just finished season one of The Wire. And uh, speaking of real estate, I know nothing about commercial real estate. That's, that's not my, my jam. But, uh, but one of the things that the bad guys were doing that was really clever is they were buying real estate in these really crappy parts of town that they knew. The shady thing is they knew that those parts of town were going to be uh, redeveloped or gentrified. But they specifically were buying properties that they knew that the government would have to pay them to demolish. So they'd buy these crappy properties and not rent them out so that they could make the money from the demolishings. And, and anyway, and that itself is sort of like a really interesting example of this lateral thinking that, uh, you know, the principle is, I mean, I'm going to get this wrong because I'm not a real estate person, but from what I take away from this is the principle is that owning that, you know, square of land gives you uh is valuable and gives you potential value and then the the game is what are all the ways that we could get value out of this do we have to just build a brand new building or can we actually leave this crappy building and just not have anyone live in it so that we can get paid when it gets torn down once again don't take you know the bad guys on wire as like your marching orders for how you should build your business, but take the, the approach that they took as a smart way to rethink problems. Well, anyway, <laughs> that's, yeah. a, that's the last one. I'll There's say. a couple of folks I actually really admire with, with related thinking to that. One is the CEO of Brookfield. You know, they've got like $500 billion in asset management. They're one of the largest commercial real estate owners. And he says, you know, he is such a dev devotee of Warren Buffett of like, go buy things that are unfashionable. You know, like mm -hmm. don't, you know, the best way to buy with a margin of safety is if you can buy a real estate building for less than its replacement cost, things like this. Right. Yeah. But, but when you're buying things that are unfashionable, it really does take much deeper thinking to think, is this unpopular for a reason that I shouldn't buy it just to be a contrarian, you know? But he says, mm -hmm. like, retail, malls are the most hated form of commercial real estate right now. Everybody thinks Amazon's going to wipe them out. And, and it's like the, the general wisdom is malls are a terrible business to be in, right? And he says, that is so great for us because what's being discounted is that it has to stay a mall. And that, mm -hmm. that it can't be turned into apartment complexes above trendy restaurants with self-storage yeah. units and last mile... Uh, last mile commercial industrial space for Amazon to deliver to the neighborhoods right there. And he's oh. like, look, these malls are next to major arteries and, you know, middle upper class neighborhoods. Like what is that proximity worth? 
if it's not just full of like the gap and failing clothing stores, right? Yeah. And uh, you have a huge amount of surface area on the roof that's pretty high up that you could put solar panels on and even, you know, generate your own electricity for the neighborhood. There's all sorts of things you could do with that if you think of it as not just having to be a mall. Well, and with changes in autonomous driving, the likelihood that they need that much parking lot space seems like it's it's going to be reduced. And so, you know, buying something as a multiple of a parking lot and then being able to turn it into really nice apartments with walking distance amenities, like that's a pretty big arbitrage to buy parking lots, right? Oh, yeah, you I know, want to do that. The other Sign guy, <laughs> right? I know, let's go buy parking lots together. So the other one is uh, very similar. It's the guy who bought Sears when they were on their way down. And everyone's saying like, what a mistake. You know, this is so likely to go bankrupt. What are you thinking? And he said, I sure hope not. But you realize I bought the whole company for significantly less than the real estate was worth. If if Sears dies, do you realize the square footage I own in so many ideal locations in ideal cities? Anyways, yeah. to your point. That's that's the breaking down the, the first principles, right? It's like saying the battery is cobalt and aluminum and... It, yeah, it's really, really good uh, example of exactly what we've been talking about. Well, do you want to give anybody a sneak peek for what's coming next? Sure. And then I have to, to run to my next meeting, unfortunately. I wish, wish we could do this for, for hours. So in the next episode, we're going to build on this observation stage of scientific method and first principles thinking and go into second order thinking, which is really about asking the right questions and thinking about what are the, the right questions for the long-term domino effects of what we can be doing. Not just solving the acute problem, but solving the bigger picture problem. Setting that up so that when you get to the actual problem-solving phases of brainstorming ideas and debating and hypotheses and, and coming to conclusions, that you're attacking the right problem and that is all built on these observations that we're making. So that's what we're going to dig into is, is how to think about the right problem to attack before you get to attacking. I love it. Everybody tune back in for that one. Shane, as always, thanks for giving us so much time. Thank you so much, Jess. Bye, everyone.